0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, even now as we open your word, let the book live in the eyes of our hearts, change our imaginations, change our vision as we live now in a day when Satan buffets and trials like billows roll over our lives, give us a vision of Jesus Christ and the glory which is coming. And so let the book live to us in such a way that we are renewed in hope and we are reinvigorated in faith and we are absolutely transformed by love and let this prophecy of Isaiah live inside of us, amen. We'll be in Isaiah 34 and 35 today. Isaiah 34 and 35 are about hell and heaven. And if you were here last week, we looked at chapter 34, the wrath and justice of God revealed in hell. And this week, we get to see Isaiah's vision of heaven and seeing the king in his beauty and living where joy and, uh, where joy and peace dwell and where sorrow and tears are forever banished. As we prepare to look at this text, we uh, love to sing that hymn by uh, Horatio Spafford. I love the hymns of Charles Wesley. I love the contemporary praise hymns of uh, Keith and Kristen Getty. But as we prepare to look at Isaiah 35, let us begin our biblical meditation this day with some words from the hymn writer John Bon Jovi, the (laughs) 80s big hair glam rock band Uh, And subsequently, Bon Jovi went through the requisite number of facelifts, I suppose, where they were writing hits in the 80s, 90s, and even into the 2000s. A song that he co-wrote with guitarist uh, Richie Sambora, and it just says this line over and over. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't gonna live forever. Every day, when you wake up, You're going to imagine in this day, you're going to live forever or you ain't going to live forever. And every day as you're going through your day, you're waiting in the drive through, you're working, you're doing this, doing that. You're thinking at least somewhere in the back of your mind as if you're going to live forever or as if you aren't. And every night when you put your head on the pillow, whether you get a good night's sleep or you toss and turn. You're either considering yourself as someone who's gonna live forever or you're just thinking like most people think that this life is all there is. What a pastor does on the Lord's day when the Lord's people are gathered is simply this. I am called and anointed by God to address you as someone who is going to live forever. And I'm also called by God to correct you because you're someone who is gonna live forever, but you don't think about that nearly enough. I don't have to open up the Word of God to belabor for you to wonder what you're gonna have for lunch. You think about that. I don't have to open up the Word of God to belabor to you to think, is the air conditioner really working? I got lots of church ladies with their fans today. the, The air is running. Although we had Church membership class yesterday, I had like 18 people in that room over there and that air was not running and they had to hear me talk about church membership for three and a half hours, poor souls. But uh, you, you don't need a pastor to cajole you and correct you into thinking about what's gonna happen in this life. We all think about that obviously and effortlessly. But what a pastor does is he addresses you as someone who's going to live forever and the pastor's job is to prepare you to die well, to be ready for death and to be ready for what comes after. And we see that in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 34 and 35 are Isaiah speaking to us as people who are going to live forever. In these two chapters, Isaiah takes us by the hand And he leads us forward to future history. It has already been revealed. So I call it future history because, so to speak, from God's perspective, it's already history, even though from our perspective, it's in the future. But from God's perspective, it is already decreed and revealed. And he leads us forward to that uh, moment, which is the last moment of moments, because it's the moment when time yields to eternity. And Isaiah shows us the invisible but undeniable connection between who you are today, what you imagine today, what you think about today, what you trust today, and what will be revealed about you on that day. He lifts... His eyes when he first wrote it from the 8th century before Christ came down to forever. And he means to lift our eyes today from this summer day toward forever. And he shows us in Isaiah 34 verse 10 of a time when none shall pass through it forever and ever. He's talking forever and ever And he sees in uh, Isaiah 34 verse 12, a time when the nobles and the kings and the presidents and the vice presidents and every United Nations ambassador and every climate change expert and every powerful person will be humbled and God alone will be the king. And we see in chapter 35, a time when human existence is so renewed that in verse one, the life that we've already lived could just be called a desert, a flowerless, fruitless desert, and the paradise to come is filled with flowers and fruit. He leads us forward to a time when we will see the king in his beauty. And the point is this, your vision of yourself and God now will have an influence and an impact on who you become in that final day. Where do you place your trust? Where do you point your affection? And where do you focus your vision? Do you live each day as someone who, uh, I ain't gonna live forever? Or do you live each day as someone who is certain that you're going to live forever? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, an anxious heart. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and all sorrow and all sighing shall flee away. We look at this vision of heaven in the future and Isaiah's imagery. I dare say Isaiah is a more skilled poet than John Bon Jovi. His imagery is just, it captivates my imagination. Every week it captivates my imagination and this week was no exception. Look what he says in verse, thir- in verse one. He says that a wilderness and a dry land And a desert all of a sudden blossoms and blossoms abundantly. You know, there's an exquisite equipose in this little poem. It's 10 verses. And you see in verse 1, rejoice. And verse 2, rejoice, joy, and singing. And then you see in verse 10, the equipose at the end, everlasting joy, singing, rejoicing with gladness and singing the opening image of a dry desert that begins to bloom with flowers and we sing for great joy so the image is originally from a literal time when God's people were in a desert where there was nothing to eat and nothing to drink and God miraculously provided sweet water in the desert, in Exodus chapter 17. That's the prototype of salvation. We look back at the Exodus as the type or the figure or the shadow ahead of time or the prototype of salvation. So here in the fullness of biblical revelation, we have the ultimate salvation that is our final salvation on that day when we see Jesus face to face and he uses this same imagery that the desert now blossoms with water and fruitfulness what he did in the prototype he will do again in the finality in that first dramatic symbol the desert bloomed with water in the final when the whole scroll of the story is revealed it'll happen again even better And what we see in verse 2 is the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And so he's speaking of earth being renewed. But the most important glory is the last clause in verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord. Glory and holiness are two key terms in Isaiah's vocabulary. We met them both in Isaiah chapter 6. And especially in Isaiah chapter 6, he said something about, or he, he didn't say it actually, the, the chanting angels said it in the throne room. You remember what they said about glory? The whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. God's glory is his presence experienced by creation. And the whole earth is filled now with the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, his manifest presence. Here he's present on the earth to save us. Look at the word glory a couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness. There's our desert in our wilderness. A voice cries in the wilderness, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. Uneven ground shall become level. The rough places shall become plain. For this reason, why, why does all of the tectonic architecture of the planet have to be rearranged? For this reason, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And church, don't ever miss this connection. God's glory, and your joy. Oh if, I, oh, if I could convince you of that in your mental, emotional imagination. If I could get you to quit spinning around and trying to find joy in this or that or the other outcome. And I could get you to really believe that your joy is tied to God's glory. Joy is all over this chapter. It's there in verse 1 and it's there in verse 10. It's really the theme of the song. And church, salvation is meant for our joy. Is our salvation meant to bring glory to God? Well, yeah. Is our salvation meant to fill us with joy overflowing forever and ever? Well, yeah. Both both of those answers are correct. Salvation is joy because The sin, which leads to sorrow and death, is taken away. So it's replaced with joy. But also, salvation leads to joy because in God's presence is fullness of joy. Remember the image of verse 1 of a dry desert? Could I challenge you to take that not so much cosmically as how God's going to renew all of creation, But could I challenge you to think about your life this week? Do you feel like you've been living in a desert? Or do you feel like you've been living in Eden? I am a dry and flowerless desert in myself. You are a parched, empty wasteland in yourself, because the roots of pride are inside you. The roots of bitterness are inside you. These roots that, isn't this, isn't this insane? These roots are inside of you, which actively and aggressively resist the forgiving love of God. The human condition post-Edom, after our fall, is so insane that we resist the God who woos us into his presence and joy. We resist him with bitterness, with unforgiveness, with unbelief, with hearts that are filled with anxiety, with a desire to control everything. And so we give up joy because our hearts are filled with that defensive dismissal of love. But God causes the rose to bloom in the desert. This is what the gospel does. It takes you who were dead in trespasses and sins, you who were actively by your mind serving wickedness and fleshliness, and God raises you up with Jesus Christ and so transforms you from the inside out. This is the joy that's ours in salvation. It will be ours perfectly on that day, but it is ours imperfectly yet progressively day by day by day by day. So a joyless Christian will make no sense eternally because in the presence of Christ is fullness of joy, and a Christ-filled, joyless Christian on any given Tuesday or Thursday should also make no sense on this side of the eschaton. In the gospel of salvation, we have the joy of being liberated from sin and from self and being turned to God. Heaven is heaven because I know it says somewhere, I think in Revelation, there's a crystal sea, but heaven is heaven because listen to me, church, there ain't no mirrors there. You will not have to look at yourself anymore. And you will behold the king in his beauty and you will be delivered from the arid desert. That's you all by yourself. Heaven is heaven because we see God there. Heaven is heaven because we know God there. Heaven is heaven because we actually supernaturally love as we have been loved. And we can finally know as we've been known and love as we've been loved. So let's talk heaven. Uh, Let's... Let's posit, say, like a radio program that, that has listeners call in and say, hey, this is the question today. Call in and say what you're excited about about heaven. Or if you don't listen to the radio anymore because you're not 90 years old, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, poll on Twitter or whatever. So, you know, p- reply at with what you're most excited about in heaven. What's your guess? It's probably probably similar to my guess. We would hear a lot about grandma. (laughs) I'm going to see grandma. We'd hear a lot about cookies out of the oven. We'd hear a lot about fishing and family reunions and finally hitting the hole in one. I wonder how much we would hear about God. Now, it's not a radio call-in. It's not just a random online thing. Let's just close those doors and deliver that poll to everyone in this room right now, would the responses be better than the responses of the general populace? I hope so. But would the first thing we say be God? Would the first thing we say be Jesus? That's it. That's it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Isaiah's unforgettable words in Isaiah 33 verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see the land that stretches afar. From a desert blooming into flowering fruitfulness. From the glory of the Lord being seen. Then we get to verses 3 and 4 where we find hearts are helped. And I'll tell you, uh, as as we exegete or interpret this paragraph, it is a 10-verse poem. And verses 3 and 4 are the core of the poem. It's a 10-verse poem and verses 3 and 4 are the core of the poem. Because rather than just a poem out there sort of meaning to tickle the fancy of your imagination, verses 3 and 4 are the poet reaching through and saying, this is why you need to have this poem in your heart right now. This is why. So that you will strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. And you will say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. Now interpret that rightly. Is Isaiah saying that he wants your weak hands to be strengthened? Maybe secondarily. But the main thing Isaiah is saying is you need this poem about heaven so that you yourself can strengthen the weak hands of somebody alongside you. And you yourself can find a friend who has an anxious heart and say, hey, God is going to come through and God is going to save you. Church, get this and get it well. In this chapter about heaven, the main point is this. You should be constantly helping other people to get there. That's the point. Of course you should be helping people that aren't saved yet, but I'm saying you should be helping the saved to get to heaven. You should be helping your fellow church members who have weak hands and feeble knees and who doubt the strength of God and who are fearful of heart and you should help them to get there. See it in the text. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with recompense and he will come and he will save you. Notice, this is is a correction to the way we think about church sometimes and I have no problem correcting the sort of lazy ways that we think about church. We think we have to come to church to receive a new blessing. We don't. We have to come to church to strengthen what we have already <laughs> received. This is why we need to be here week by week, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. When it comes to the preaching of the word, maybe you've heard me say this to you before, but it doesn't matter if I've said something to you before, because you never remember what I say. Uh, this may be one of the most important things I can say about preaching. When you listen to the sermon, don't listen for things that you've never heard before. Listen for the things that you should never forget. Listen for the things that you should never forget because we forget them and we become weak and we forget them and we become feeble and we forget them and we grow an anxious heart and we forget them and we grow fearful. Listen for the truths that you should never forget and then let the preaching of the word and the singing of the saints and the fellowship of the holy ones help you to remember. Not only is verses three and four an argument for why we need to listen to preaching for the things we should never forget, verses three and four in our little context, I would make no bones about it, is an argument for why you've got, you've got to get into one of our ABFs. ABF stands for Adult Bible Fellowship. This is where we strengthen each other. It's where we pray for each other. I think the author of Hebrews has, this ki- has exactly this kind of thing in mind because he quotes Isaiah a couple of times in his epistle when he says, for instance, listen to Hebrews 3 verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And maybe you remember how he says it in chapter 10. Hebrews 10 in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need each other. We need Christian friends alongside of us. This chapter about heaven... The main application point is that we should constantly be helping each other to get there. This is one more reason that you need to be in fellowship with other believers. Here at RBC, we try to accomplish that through our ABF ministry. And I don't just mean you attend ABF. I mean you have real relationships, real relationships in ABF. What is a real relationship? In the context here, A real relationship is a relationship where I can admit uh, I have an anxious heart. A real relationship is a relationship where you can say to me, uh, it looks to me like you're becoming weak and you're faltering. And I don't get defensive and I don't run away, but I let you help me. It's where we can say to each other, God will come. Verse 4, God will come and he will save you. The core point here is that we should constantly be helping each other to get there. Then in verses 5 through 7, we have the blind seeing, we have the deaf hearing, we have the lame jumping up and dancing like a deer. Again, uh, prophecy, first coming, second coming. The main thing that made people go, what? When Jesus came was that he made the blind see and he made the lame walk. So we see it in his first coming. And here, in speaking of his final and second coming, we see it all the more. I challenge you in verse one to think of yourself in only yourself without God in you as a desert. Well, could I give you the same challenge in verse five? Think of yourself as only yourself without the Spirit of God, without the illumination of the Spirit of God. What are you? Blind, deaf, and lame. Question, what did I bring to my salvation? Answer, my blindness, my deafness, my inability to walk. What did Jesus bring? Everything, everything. Charles Wesley, hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. This is what God does. This is what God does in the gospel. Verse eight, the highway of holiness. This is the highway to everlasting joy. Verse 10, we end with everlasting joy where all sorrow flees away. And the highway to get there, verse 8, is called the highway of holiness. In New Testament terms, we could call this the highway to heaven. And the highway to heaven is the way of holiness, which puts us again onto a major theme of the book of Isaiah, which is God's holiness. Holiness is the defining characteristic of God in the trihagion of Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. So above all else, God is holy. And the, the way to heaven, remember our radio poll? What are you excited about heaven? Because God's there. Well, God is holy. So the way of holiness is the way to God who is holy. It's not the golden streets. It's not the pearly gates. It's the presence of God in the beauty of his holiness that makes heaven desirable. And so if heaven is where a holy God dwells in pure light and pure love and pure joy. That means there's no sin in heaven. And if there can't be any sin in heaven, how can there be a you in heaven? How can there be a me in heaven? Because we sin on the daily. Well, this is how. Isaiah 6, Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm unclean. And the coal from the altar, the atoning altar, came and seared his lips. This is Old Testament imagery of a sacrifice that would burn away our sin. Isaiah 35 verse 4 uses the word salvation. He will come and save you. How is that salvation accomplished? He will show us in Isaiah 52, 53, 54, the suffering servant. God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It wasn't just the lamb on the altar. It was Jesus Christ on the altar of wood, on that cross. This is the way to heaven. There on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In our ABFs, we're making our way through 1 Corinthians, like the the. Paul just flat out says, right, in First Corinthians 15, hey, of everything, that, of everything that I'm blah, 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 and I'm boring you because I'm talking so long, this is of first importance that Christ died for our sins, that Christ died for my sins. This is of first importance that Christ died for your sins. This is of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. And that he rose the third day according to the scriptures. This is the only way that we enter the highway of holiness. Finally, verses 9 and 10, everlasting joy. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. I think you know. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine this week who's an unbeliever. And I said this to him. I think you know that the best joy in the world isn't found by looking within. And he agreed with me. I think you know that too. I think you know the best joy in the world is not found by looking in the mirror. I think everybody knows that. The best joy is found when we see the Lord. That's where gladness and joy come from. Everlasting joy is found in the love of God. We all know that self-love and selfishness makes us sick in the end. A woman wrapped up in herself is a pathetically joyous package. A man wrapped up in his own concerns about his own ego is a pathetically small and shriveled up man. You were meant to love God. And out of the love that you receive from God and the love that you give for God, second most important commandment is like it, you were meant to lavishly share that love with your neighbor. That's what you were made for, that's where your joy is found. You were not made to self fixate. You were not made to love yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you certainly weren't made to anxiously run around and make sure that everything in the world constantly, minute by minute, makes your heart, soul, mind, and strength happy. That's not where happiness is found. Joy is found doxologically. Joy is found externally. In heaven... There's nothing inward, there's nothing downward, there's nothing selfward. There's only upward and outward, and with the doxology of worthy is the Lamb. So, these images of heaven, this vision of heaven on that day, is meant to rearrange our living day by day. And so, we end with three answers to the question what difference does this make today? Number one, realistic expectations. Realistic expectations. I don't mean realistic expectations of heaven because I don't think you can ever imagine what's going to be there. I mean realistic expectations of uh, what's going on until we get there. Because verse 10 tells us that sorrow and sighing shall flee away but church verse 10 tells us that sorrow and sighing shall flee away on that day and not until that day not until that day today some tumors are inoperable today some relational sins are unfixable today some problems are intractable. Every situation, it can be helped by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And even if it isn't fixed, you can learn to manage it better. You can learn not to despair in it. You can learn how not to sin because of it. But sorrow and sighing and every situation that needs fixing will not be fixed until that day. When you ask someone the question, or they fill in life is the ellipsis. Life is dot, dot, dot. You learn a lot about somebody by how they answer that question. Famous answer to that question. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. How would you answer the question life is, life is? I would say this, life is a short run through a battlefield. That's what life is. That's what this life is. It's a short run through a battlefield. I would answer in the words of the old hymn, this life is Jordan's stormy banks. That's what this life is. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. This life is Jordan's stormy banks. It's painful. Some things in it are unfixable. Some problems in it are intractable. And I say that as someone who believes in biblical ministry. I have, you know, you don't even need to hear me say this. I have seen the Bible fix troubled marriages. I have seen the Bible deliver folks from depression. I have seen the Bible and the Holy Spirit of God and the people of God do all of this. But I have also seen situations where good biblical truth was applied and the problem doesn't go away. The situation isn't fixed. What do we do with that? Does it prove to us that the Bible is insufficient? Does it prove to us that that, uh, we're not really getting it? For all of our Bible quoting and counseling and pleading, there are things that Jesus hasn't fixed yet. There aren't any things that Jesus isn't going to fix. The issue is he hasn't fixed it yet. And the day that he fixes it may not come. Until that day, which is called the end of days, because it is the day when day and night are no more and we are in his presence. So I'm just saying this gives us, this promise of heaven gives us a more realistic expectation of how to live day by day by day. Number two, redrawn battle lines. Redrawn battle lines. One thing that Isaiah has shown me is we are fighting the wrong fight. Oh, church, how did we get so mixed up to where we're fighting the wrong fight? We need to redraw our battle lines. Psalm 20, verses 6 through 9. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven, from the saving might of his right hand. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we will stand upright. Isaiah is, Isaiah is beating this drum. Stop trying to get help from Egypt. Stop trying to get help from Egypt. Trust in the Lord. We will see it in the next chapter in the story of Sennacherib and Hezekiah. We'll see it dramatically. The battle lines are redrawn by this vision of heaven. We are in a spiritual battle and we forget that all the time because we don't think we're going to live forever and we don't think of uh, of the unseen and so we just live each day wondering, is that person going to be mean to me or nice to me? We just live each day wondering, what's the flavor of the day? I hope it's not butter pecan again. We just live each day wondering simple things that we could see and taste and touch. But we are in a spiritual battle. And the spiritual battle explains why life isn't easy for real committed Christians. Let me say that again. Life isn't easy for real committed Christians. Here's an open secret. Every pastor worth his salt knows it and every pastor worth his salt is clear about it. Church people who sort of show up sometimes and sit on the edges and don't do anything, their life can be pretty easy. But church members who are really in it, who are in real relationships, who are praying fervently, who are seeking to do what verses three and four say and and help strengthen other Christians. Their life is difficult, is difficult. Their life gets hard. Why is that? Why is it that life gets hard when you serve the Lord for real? Because we are in a spiritual battle. And if you leave the snake alone, guess what? He tends to leave you alone. But if you stomp on, his, on that snake, guess what he does? The fangs come out and he attacks. And I, pastors are, are like, uh, they, they, they oversell. Like, if you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. And that makes the front door huge and all kinds of people come into church, but it also makes the back door huge because disillusioned Christians leave by the dozens and by the hundreds. You come to Jesus and it'll make your forever perfect, but it will make your life through this short run of a battlefield hard. But it'll be way better, way better than life without Jesus because you get to stomp on that serpent and we hate him with the hatred of God. And we love other people by delivering them from that serpent with the love of God. It'll redraw the battle lines. And then, third and finally, a readiness to wait. A readiness to wait. From the verb shall in Isaiah 35, verse 1 the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. To the use of the word shall four times in verse 10. The ransom of the Lord shall. The everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and sorrow and seeing shall fly away. This poem tells us that we have to wait. We have to wait. We have to endure. We have to wait. I heard a, I was listening to a sermon last week on my jog and the preacher said, something like this, he said, uh, I think it was Paul Tripp, he said, if I was at the wheel of the universe, Adam and Eve would fall in the morning, Christ would come about lunchtime, and the new heavens and the new earth would be here by dinner. Man, look at, I mean, we don't imagine it so literally, but look how long it took for Jesus to come generation after generation after generation lived without Jesus. All the prophets, all the patriarchs, everybody in the Old Testament, they waited and they waited and they waited. And now that he has come the first time, we saints wait and wait and wait for him to come again. Waiting is frustrating and the reason that waiting is frustrating is because you are unhappy when you are not in control. I'm sorry that hurt but I'm really not sorry. Waiting is frustrating and the reason waiting is frustrating is because you are unhappy when you are not in control of the timing and the circumstances and the events but waiting it doesn't need to be frustrating Because waiting can reveal to you, if you have faith, oh, listen to me, church. If you have faith, then waiting can convince you, hey, it's phenomenal that a knucklehead like me isn't in control. Waiting means God is in control. And I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy about that. What a way to live. What a way to live. What a way to have verse 4 the anxious heart delivered. What a way to be strong, to wait on the Lord. The timing of God is always right. The ways of the Lord are always good and true. The plan of God is perfect. Do not be discouraged, dear saints, when you wait. If you hope in the Lord, your hope will never disappoint. If you hope in the Lord, your hope will never disappoint. I want you to live by faith. I want you to live with stability. I want you to live with hope. I want you to live with hope and faith and love. And so church, wait with hope in God. And so church, fight this spiritual battle with redrawn battle lines with a vivid faith and a ferocious faith in God. And church, let your expectations be rearranged by the sanctifying experience of the assurance of the love of God. Hope, faith, and love in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let the book, let the prophecy of Isaiah live inside of us, engendering hope, renewing faith, and expanding love in every heart. Lord, help your saints as they wait. Lord, help your saints as they fight the spiritual battle. Lord, help your saints to have a mind that's renewed with the right expectation from you. And give us a vision of your greatness and of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.